my earliest memory of myself. That I was walking down the street with my mom and we were holding hands and we met as we were walking along uh, someone elderly woman. And I don't know, I must have been particularly charming that day because I must have smiled real big at her and she just really found me very, very fetching and she sort of patted me on the head and it was a really good interaction. And as she was walking away, still within earshot as I was holding my mom's hand, I turned and I looked up to my mom and said, I love talking to old people who haven't died yet. <laughs> it's true. But there's another reason why I think I really remember that day. And as I told you, my mom and I were holding hands because what I associate that day with is that she taught me something that I still remember, not just remember, but actually still use this day. While holding my hand, she said, I'm going to teach you something. One, two, three. And I would squeeze back. One, two, three. Now, what does that mean? Morse code for I love you and I love you too. I love you. I love you too. And then our hands would drop away. See, what she was teaching me, you know, small child, learning what it is to be connected and not to be connected, learning what it is to hold on, and learning what it is to let go. Now I'm aware that I am starting a message about sex with a story about my mother. <laughs> and so perhaps you are thinking, whew, Oedipal issues, this guy. Paging Dr. Freud, anyone? But it's this reason. No human act is more about the balance or even the imbalance of holding on and letting go than sex is. Last week in the intro to this series, I talked about attachment coming in two forms, clinginess, needing all the time to be close, or aversion, needing all the time to be separated and distant. And the challenge in this message series of talking about the tough stuff is that if we really face the tough stuff in our lives, the challenging things, we can move into a fuller, deeper, more richer understanding, not just understanding because it's not intellectual, a more full being in our lives, who we are, a whole life that brings a sacred connection. And sex very much has right within it attachments, Detachment, clinginess, union, communion, separation, proximity, everything, as they say in sex, like the old ragu commercial, it's in there. It is in there. More than any theology that we can understand, more than any book, it's in there. You see, sex, of course, is an act that is done with our bodies. But sex can reveal the depth and the state of our spirits. It can reveal our capacity, our capacity for awe. And it can reveal to us as well the experience of awfulness. It can be the realization of what so many different traditions have taught about from Sikhism to Judaism to the teachings of Aristotle. The experience, which really can't be captured in words, but what is talked about by saying the experience of one soul in two bodies. And sex can also reveal at the same time 
that simply because two bodies are close to each other in physical proximity, it can expose at the same time the widest of wide chasms, gaping chasms between two hearts. We know sexuality in those wonderful experiences of delight and ecstasy in being so close to one another of a connection so pleasurable and profound that no words, even though I will try to use them to describe this morning, no words can ever capture. And we wear it as well, our memories of sexuality, being sexual people, in painful memories of trust betrayed, of promises broken, and even... Just looking at the number of people here, the percentages of bodies violated as well. We experience sex with our bodies, but we find the meaning of that experience with our souls and in the soul. Sex is so much more, I got to tell you, and you all know this already, than who does what to whom and what goes where, the plumbing problems. Those are important enough, and go see a doctor if you have those issues. Don't talk to me about it. Well, you can talk to me about it, but I'm going to tell you to go see a doctor. (laughs) Sex is about touch and intimacy and trust and knowing sometimes, sometimes that our greatest vulnerability, our experience of our vulnerability, literally ourselves naked. It can also be a source of great strength and great power. So today is not a how-to message. I'm not talking techniques here. You all have an internet connection. Go ahead and look forth if you need to. My basic orientation is this. Sexuality is a gift. Not some manifestation of our depraved or fallen nature. Unfortunately, that attitude of fallenness, even if people don't hold that kind of theology, it still is unfortunately integrated into our society of how we perceive and talk about sex. The religious roots of this are in the mistrust of the body. Any of you have ever heard the phrase Cartesian dualism? Cartesian dualism? Okay, you've heard that. Descartes, what did he say? I think, therefore I am. Sounds simple enough, but it's not. See, because Descartes, what he was teaching about is that he wanted to have something that he could absolutely trust. And he felt that anything outside the experience of his own mind, of his own rationality, might be, probably would be, the act of a deceiver. And so this is the establishment of that disconnect between our mind, our soul, and our bodies. See, this mind-body split is about the most unhealthy thing that philosophy has ever foisted upon the world. Because if you follow this out logically to its conclusion, is that we can't trust anything that happens with our bodies. And so it makes all sexual desire inherently something that is unholy. It actually negates the moral and spiritual call to not just constrain or contain our sexual selves, but in fact, not to pay attention to and understand sexuality as a means of communion, as a means of sacred connection, and a necessary part of our full flourishing. Sexual desire, of course, can be dangerous and it can be destructive, but it also can be delightful. I remember a few years ago in that first category, the dangerous, destructive part, not feeling that it's safe, not feeling that it's good. There was an episode of Sex and the City, if you used to watch that in the early years, and I think it was Miranda who, before she got married, and I know too much about Sex and the City, probably, I'm going to reveal that right now. Um, But before she got married and actually had a family and things turned out sort of okay for her, she had a series of sort of unfortunate sexual mishaps and adventures and she was 
dating a man. They were sort of boyfriend and girlfriend. And every time after sort of the act was finished, he would immediately get up and go take a shower. And what it was revealed, her theory was, is that he grew up in this really kind of strict religious upbringing that had this theological sense of the mind-body dualism. And once it was over, he just had to get it off me, get it off me, this kind of thing. Now, she shared that with him, and I think you all know this already, or at least I hope you know this. Psychoanalyzing your partner right after, it's not good. (laughs) Talk about it a little bit later, perhaps. But that's part of that religious attitude that is harmful, that way of seeing the body and seeing the sexual part of our bodies as a negative, unholy, not sacred thing. But there are other religious resources that, in fact, are very, very healthy when it comes to sexuality. Martin Buber, one of my favorite teachers, one of my favorite theologians, said not just that sex is an eh thing, he said actually it is a commandment. On the Sabbath with a person that you love, in fact, to engage in sexual intercourse is what they call in the Hebrew a mitzvah, a good deed, a good deed. Well, today's our Sabbath, so I allow you to draw your own conclusions on that. (laughs) See, because what he said was, it's part of the act of creation, not just procreation, but the original as he understand God's, as he understood in the Jewish tradition, God's love being an outflowing of the self towards the world. And when we are close to another person that we love in that act, he says on the Sabbath, we almost sort of redraw, recommit that original divine energy that was there at the start, however we understand the start of the universe. Now, also one of my biggest influences in terms of a healthy, healthy connection with sexuality actually was a Roman Catholic sister of mercy. She was my ethics professor at divinity school. She was deeply progressive, and she was always trying to sort of stay within the bounds of what was acceptable within the Catholic hierarchy, and very often she wound herself up in some trouble. And she saw a problem in the, well, she saw many problems, but as she perceived it, one particular problem in the ethics, the sexual ethics of her church, which is that she, as so many of us could see, so many of us do see on a regular basis with our own eyes, that there are people of the same sex, the same gender, who are involved in loving, committed relationships of the same moral worth and value of relationships between people of the opposite gender. And yet, because of the restrictions of her hierarchy, she couldn't just come out and say it. And so she went back into the tradition and tried to teach that there is, within Catholicism, within Unitarian Universalism, we don't have this kind of baggage to carry, fortunately. But she said, in fact, that there are two traditions around the healthy teaching of sexuality. The first is about procreation. The first is about procreation. And too much of the sexual teachings in traditional religions just focus on that, that sex is good just for procreation. But instead, no, she said there's this deeper teaching It's called unitive. Sex has within it the capacity to restore to ourselves with another person that state of wholeness in relationship. Unitive, the capacity to establish union and connection at the deepest level. Now back to Martin Buber. If you've heard, if you've been around for a little while, you've heard me talk about, he says there are two fundamental ways of relating to the world. I, it, and I, thou. I, it, is that other people are a means to our end. But he says there's a deeper way of relating to the world. It's what he calls I-thou, where we relate to another person as an end 
in and of themselves. We do not see them as a stepping stone back to our pleasure or just to another goal beyond them, but we see another person as intrinsically valuable and we care about them as much as we care about our own lives. This is the kind of religious teaching on sex that makes sense. One of my favorite quotes actually comes from 1622, from the Puritans of all places. We don't tend to think of them as sort of sex-positive kinds of folks. But actually, the founder of the church in Cambridge, the first parish in Cambridge, which back then was Puritan, a couple hundred years later became one of the first Unitarian churches in America. He said this, and I really love it. He said, love in the soul is like touching in the body. Love in the soul is like touching in the body. What he was saying is that this physical expression is most meaningful, most powerful, when it occurs within the context of a deeper story. Two people who have a knowledge and a care for each other. Love in the soul is like touching in the body. It is more than just pure physical sensation. It is moving from the realm of sensation to the realm of story, of sharing the story of another person's life. Now, about three weeks ago, I was almost interviewed by an online women's magazine because they were trying to do an article about religion and divorce, and I just published this little book last year that talks about my own divorce within it. And the interview never came off, but I wanted to do sort of my research to see what it was that this online women's magazine might be about. And probably the most prominent column that they featured was an ongoing piece by a woman who was open about the fact that she had an open marriage. She could sleep with whomever she wanted to, and her husband could sleep with whomever he wanted to. Now, the problem as I saw it, well, one of the problems is that he didn't want to sleep with anyone else, and she did all the time. So whether that you know, works out in time, we'll see. And let me say this. Let me say this. Everyone in this society is free to do what they want. Everyone in this society is free to do what they want as long as it's consensual, it does not harm another. But I'm not talking about secular ethics today. That's important, but it's not what we're called here to do. As I read this woman's article, I didn't feel judgmental. I felt sad. It was a picture of loneliness. If I see it, if I can have it, I have it. I move on, and then I look for the next. It sort of reminded me of those people who, you know, shoot those videos, like Girls Gone Wild and stuff like this. I said, no, 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 don't be a prude. It's, it's really liberating. It's really liberating. Maybe at a certain level. If your assumption is that the only way to talk about sex is to resist it with prudishness. But to me, that's kind of like... A lung cancer survivor saying that what they will do with their newfound freedom when their health is restored, the first thing they will do is have a cigarette. Of course, there is release and freedom in being a libertine. But it is not spiritually the deepest expression of who we are called to be with our freedom. Of course, it is pleasurable. You may want to do it. And pleasure for pleasure's sake is not abhorrent. But it is so very limited with just a pleasure act unto itself because there are aspects of ourselves that will never be accessed if we do not remember the very key distinction between pleasure and between happiness. 
Tal Ben-Jahar, some of you have heard me mention that name before. He teaches the most popular course at Harvard about happiness. And I've been in the Ivy Leagues. They are not happy places. And so all these undergrads are taking this popular course. And he has a wonderful, very perfect way of describing happiness. Happiness is pleasure plus purpose. Enjoyment in the context of something that has an ongoing story and that is meaningful. There was a piece last year in Psychology Today that actually studied a subset of men called sort of Casanovas. You know, those who sort of pursue and bed and go after as many people as they can. And what they found, in fact, is that behind that bragging, behind that sense of the conquest and wanting the conquest all the time, there, in fact, was deep, deep unhappiness, low self-esteem, lack of fulfillment. And in fact, because so much of that energy was just put into the pursuit of pleasure, there was not energy left over for the pursuit of those deeper, more noble goals, such as moving from sensation into story. In fact, there was an addictive quality to their pursuit, their constant pursuit of the next conquest. So when we talk about sex, I think at the deepest level, I really remember what is, some of you might know of, a curriculum called Our Whole Lives, OWL. It is a Unitarian Universalist curriculum that's throughout the ages, but it's specifically centered on teens, but there's a version for adults as well, too. It was, connected, it was brought up by the Unitarian Universal Association and the United Church of Christ. And if you think about the meaning of what that is, our whole lives, not just our whole life long, but our whole lives, to see our sexual being in the context of our larger striving for wisdom and peace and justice and love. To see sex as something more, something much more than just a transaction of pleasure. Because to know another person really takes time. To really understand what goes on in bed I think we have to spend a lot of time with that person beyond the bed. Have to know that person's story. Meaningful sexuality, life-giving sexuality, moves it from that realm of just the sensations out into what we really yearn for in this life. Harville Hendricks, who some of you might know is a well-known teacher about the nature of relationships, he talks about the best unions, the best marriages, partnerships, as what he calls erotic friendship. Erotic friendship. See, the friendship is the noun, and it's the erotic stuff that's the modifier. When we know another person's story, we see that sexuality is about so much more than just doing it. We see there is such deep power in being touched and in touching another. I heard this this power brought home to me a number of years ago when I was in Florida doing ministry, and I was actually doing a worship workshop. And in many ways, the story isn't about sex in the sense of doing it at all, but is very much about being touched and the power of that touch. I was talking about the various elements of this church and in this church of why they have various things in their order of service. And they had something very much like we, what we do, where people greet each other, welcome each other. And someone stood up because they were trying to think maybe they wanted to change some things. And a woman stood up and she said, if we change that greeting, I will leave this church. And the other people in her church sort of turned around and looked at her and said, what's that about? And she told her story with these people who knew her. Turns out she had had absolutely 
horrendous experiences sexually. The victim of abuse. And she said, I come to this church. I come to this place because it is the only safe place for me to touch. It is the only safe place for me to be touched. When we talk about sex, it is so much more than just what goes where. Touching in the soul is like love in the body. It reveals what's there or not there and what is significant. Now, how do we, how do you deal with what you find in your sexual being? I think the first thing to remember is humor. Humor and playfulness. The movie Dogma, Kevin Smith, some of you know about it, very irreverent, but still very much the work of a believer, someone who is striving to understand God in his life. He has one of the angels, not a fallen angel, but just a very irreverent kind of angel, says at one point, if you don't think that God has a sense of humor, look at the ridiculous faces you people make when you're having sex. Humor and playfulness. We can want and do some very silly things because of sexual desire. Sometimes lost amidst in our marketplace of ideas and indeed of bodies at times. Lost amidst the boasts of those who say they have prowess. And the appeals to many varieties of sexual treatment. And to this sort of Ingmar Bergman-esque, sorry, I was sort of a film minor in college. I watched a lot of Ingmar Bergman films. Sex is the most serious, deadly serious thing in the world in those movies. Beyond all that, just to recall again that sexuality can connect us with playfulness and with simple fun, with the pleasure of being in the presence of another body. Maybe we can be so serious, overly serious about sex because when we really face it, we may want to avoid that sex in its essence makes us vulnerable. It is not possible without true vulnerability. Sex at its deepest level is about the sharing, sometimes even the relinquishing, the multiplying of power between two people. And it can be really, really rocky terrain to negotiate. And sometimes people just opt out. They opt out of this kind of vulnerable understanding of their bodies and themselves. Sexual violence at its worst, well, it's always at its worst, but it is the depraved illusion or the experience of making another person the sole object of our need to control. Think about the Rolling Stones, Under My Thumb. Know that song? Now, I love the Rolling Stones, but it's an awful song. <laughs> It's brutal. Under my thumb lies a squirming dog who's just seen her day. You know, I mean, it's really nasty stuff. It's that illusion of control of another person. Healthy sexuality admits into itself this necessity of vulnerability, this dance of shared power and of learning how to healthily negotiate what is found there. And the promise of the hope of mutuality, the hope of fulfillment for both people. This is the experience, as I know many of you know already, of caring about another's body as much as you do your own. In this way, spiritually, sex is actually a kind of stewardship. It is receiving the gift of another person's being 
in the form of their body and treasuring that gift and holding it and sharing it and knowing it is not yours to keep but to partake of. If sexuality really is this kind of gift, then ultimately what we find there is a very old religious word. We find revelation. In our sexual experience of ourselves in a meaningful way with another person, there is no place to hide. And that's not easy. (laughs) Because when there is no place to hide, naked is the day you were born, an experience of just you, just there with another. The promise of that is that healthy sexuality can take us into a place beyond any shame, beyond any sense that we are not enough, and into the reality and grace that we are sufficient. And it makes us deal with these fallible, (laughs) wonderful, chaotic, sometimes failing, sometimes striving bodies. When you learn another person's body, you know its scars, you know its pleasure points, you see its changes. You come to know it, and you come to know another. You see who you really are, you see who another really is, and you see as well the third, that together there can be the presence of that one soul created between the two of you. Billy Bragg, one of my favorite performers, He said that most important decisions in life are made between two people in bed. And then he concludes, because it's about a love relationship that failed, I found that out at my expense. In those negotiations, in holy sexuality, in healthy sexuality, those decisions are made real. Several years ago, actually almost a decade ago now, when I was doing chaplaincy, I was doing hospital chaplaincy, I was ministering to a man who had lived a rough and tough life. Not a good life and not a life in which he had been and had held another person's life with much fidelity. He had been a long, long time drug addict. He had AIDS, hepatitis C, all sorts of blood disorders. He was dying. And at one point he really opened up to me and he talked that as he was dying, Really, one regret he had was his relationship with his estranged wife. He knew and he felt so guilty, so guilty about the trust that had been broken between the two of them, the trust that he had abused over and over and over again. And as he said it, thankfully, she was doing okay. She was going to live. I counseled him and prayed with him several times when we were together. And one day, it's a Friday, I sort of knocked at the door. I saw it was closed. He had a private room. I knocked and sort of looked around, and I saw something I didn't expect to see. Two bodies lying on the bed, fully clothed, face to face. And as I didn't want to disturb them, but I just wanted to see if he was okay, I saw the tears streaming down both of their faces. And he said, can you come back? Obviously, I left. It was his wife. He and his wife embraced on the bed. Not sexual in the sense of who's doing what to whom, but intimate in the truest, deepest sense of what intimacy can mean for us. Face 
to face. Now we will see, as the Bible says, hopefully someday, face to face. In forgiveness, in intimacy, it was the truest act I've ever seen, I must tell you, of what making love means. Because there was such truth and power there. It was their version, I realized, when I got back on Monday. And I knocked on his door and he was gone. It was their version of the final, I love you. I love you too. Final squeeze and release. One more chance, even in the midst of a very hard life, to say, I love you. The promise of that kind of a brace, and then knowing we can let go, as eventually we all must, well, that is about death. And that's for next week. So I leave it here. And I leave you with this final hope for you, that all of us, all of you, will be blessed in your bodies, that you will have the capacity to touch and to be touched to the very core of our common humanity, whatever your sexual experience is, however difficult, however pleasurable, and probably something of both of each. The promise of that kind of connection is that it points to an embrace so warm and so tender that we neither have to run after it nor refuse to let it go, but to accept it and accept ourselves and all of our vulnerability and all of our frailty and to find finally in this vulnerability that we can touch a source of strength that is deeper than just our own strength alone, that we can truly know one another as a gift and to know that in that gift, we are loved. Amen. And may you live in blessing.